Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 5, The Kings, the human ones. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, brace yourself for a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. At the end of last week's episode, David and 400 of his mighty men were on their way to teach Nabal a lesson. Nabal, the stingy fool who had a sheep ranch and was shearing the sheep and having a banquet but not inviting David and his men, even though David and his men had guarded Nabal's southwestern flank and prevented any Philistine bandits from stealing any of Nabal's sheep. At this point in the story, as David is poised to take vengeance on this fool, enter yet another woman who sees things more clearly than her husband. Nabal's great and undeserved credit, he had the sense at some point to marry the clever and beautiful Abigail, who hears of her husband's answer to David from a servant. She whips up a feast of five roasted sheep with bread, wine, and fruit and accompanies the servants to bring them to David. She intercepts him and his men and falls before him, bowing to the ground before the future king. Knowing that David intends to kill her husband and his servants for the insult Nabal has leveled at them, she humbly asks David to blame her for the whole thing, when it obviously is not her fault, and tells him not to take her husband seriously, as he is an idiot. But then she gets theological telling David to both accept her gifts to appease his anger and to let me handle her husband, just as, unbeknownst to her, David has just said he's going to let me do with Saul. Abigail reminds David that I have got his back and have big plans for him, and gently urges him to leave her foolish husband alone, so as not to have any regrets to mar his conscience later in terms of his behavior leading up to his coronation. Murdering someone because they don't invite you to their party is overkill. To his credit, David has ears to hear the wisdom of this woman, and he relents, praising her for her astute advice. The resonance this immediately has with what just happened with Saul in the cave can't be missed. David acted honorably of his own accord back then when he had the chance to avenge himself on Saul with his own hands. He didn't, though, trusting in me to take care of things in my own way and time. In this instance, where the monarchy does not hang in the balance, in a matter where the chief concern of David in the moment is his pride and how it's been offended by this truly foolish citizen, we see that the coming king is still a very human human and is not above acting in knee-jerk, angry action when he feels disrespected by someone he thinks should be treating him otherwise. And that's a lesson to learn here, friend. In your walk on the way, the big things may not be a problem for you. You're likely not struggling with whether to murder someone or to bed someone else's spouse. You've got a good, strong, healthy perspective when it comes to those things, seeing the value in restraining yourself in large-scale issue arenas. However, when it comes to lesser things that press your buttons, 
Your guard of restraint is not up, and you move in quick reaction to whatever's in front of you, like David does here when he gets all offended by a fool's disrespect. In an instant of ire, the up-till-now noble king-in-waiting is ready to become a murderer over a handful of roast sheep. Friend, hear the words of Abigail with David and wait on me. She asks David to spare and forgive her fool of a husband and to let the food she's brought suffice for his men. Then comes the clincher, where the wise woman reminds David that Yahweh is fighting your battles, my lord. There's no need to take matters into your own hands. Your victory and honor are secure because he is the one giving it to you. Do not give yourself something to regret in years to come by moving to save yourself from this mere insult. Leave the matter of vengeance to Yahweh. Obviously, David's example of taking the high road in weighty matters is one to be followed. His lesson learned from Abigail is even more important because it's far more difficult, particularly in your habitat where humility is seen as weakness and megalomaniacal pride as strength, and where a surprising number of people are practically waiting to be insulted so they can flame back in anger at their perceived offender. Friend, you are not to be this way. Fight against the knee-jerk reaction to immediately respond in anger to every slight feeling of disrespect or to respond in passive-aggressive withdrawal if that's your way. Take the high road in smaller matters as well and return kindness to those who disrespect you. Over time, this will even help you be less hypocritical, for you'll dish out less of the disrespect you hate to receive. Well, thanks be to me for Abigail. The wise words from her beautiful lips soften David's heart, and he praises her for setting him straight and holding him back from taking vengeance on her old man saying there would not have been a surviving male servant in Nabal's household, not to mention Nabal himself, by morning, had she not intercepted David and his men. He sends her home in peace, and David and his men eat and drink their fill that night. And, wouldn't you know, in less than two weeks, Nabal is dead of mostly natural causes. He first has a heart attack the morning after his big party, when Abigail tells him all that transpired with David. Then, ten days later, I complete his journey for him. Now, this story does not promise that I'm going to strike your enemy dead within ten days if you back off and let me take vengeance instead of doing it yourself. In most cases, you are not going to see the consequence that comes upon the one who is mistreating you. I am here to tell you, though, that you need not concern yourself, and should not, my friend, with vengeance upon your enemies. We could go into all kinds of upbeat psychological reasons for this, but for now and again, just trust me that it'll all work out better if I am the one serving just desserts. In the current scenario, David's reward for trusting in me is the wise and beautiful freshly widowed Abigail whom he makes his wife. Of course he does. Who better to have at his side is someone as discerning and bold as she has already proven herself? In addition, 
as things obviously have not been going well between him and his father-in-law, Saul the king, the king has dissolved David's marriage to Princess Michal in David's absence and married her off to perceived political advantage. Handily, in Saul's eyes, this also dissolves David's connection to Saul's throne. And speaking of political advantage, along the way in his southern sojourns, uh, remember Nabal and Abigail hail from southwestern Israel, David also gains another wife, Ahinoam, known as Ahi to her closest friends in a habitat that didn't know Tuna existed yet. Ahinoam is from the southeastern region and the town of Jezreel. Lest everyone get all comfy and cozy with the idea of restful nuptial celebrations for David and his brides, Ziphite spies rat David out to Saul and tell him where shepherd boy is honeymooning. The king immediately forgets his promises made when spared to toileting and heads out after David, establishing camp near the purported location of David and his crew. Without going through the particulars of another yet similar episode, though you are of course welcome to read it all for yourself, the whole sequence fits in one chapter of my book, 1 Samuel 16. Suffice it to say that David has a further easy chance to off the king while he's sleeping. Clearly, Saul is the one sleeping, not David. But David spares him. David brings proof of his lethal vicinity away, in this case the king's sword and bedside water bottle, proving the next morning he's had mercy again, eliciting again the same repentant, I'm so sorry I won't do it agains, from Saul. The current and future kings part ways peacefully again. By now, David knows that Saul has turned out to be pretty much the same animal the king had been hunting when he first came upon Samuel. If you don't get that joke right off the bat, you'll have to look it up in 1 Samuel 9.3. So David is wise enough to not trust Saul and puts a good geopolitical distance between them. You may recall that David briefly sought refuge with the Philistines a little while ago. Talk about the last place to which Saul will come after you. Well, that last time, David was left alone by the Philistines because he feigned madness. This time, he's left alone because he's got a reputation for military savvy and 600 fighting men with him. Plus, the whole world knows that even though David won't kill Saul and is waiting for me to do it, they're not exactly pals. The Philistine king Achish remember, he's not the king of all the Philistines, five of them share the title of king and are in charge of respective regions in their land. Achish and David may not have known the Sanskrit proverb about your enemy's enemy, but they treat each other all friendly-like, and Achish lets David have the run of one of his southwestern towns, known for its cacti with the catchy name of Ziklag. Not to draw things out much longer, but David uses his year-plus sojourn there to make things easier for himself once the throne I've promised him is finally his. He stages raids on other non-Philistine enemies that lie further southwest past Ziklag, some more of those pesky ites like and including the Amalekites. David gains further trust from the Philistine king by sharing with Achish both the raid's spoils 
as well as the tactical tall tale that said spoils come either from the towns in southern Israel or her allies, instead of Philistia's allies, the actual booty source. Over the year's course of this repeated cycle, David and Achish become the best of frenemies. Military statecraft aside, we want to use David as an example here again of someone who so believes what we've promised him that he is living with certain confidence in that promise. David is totally living like he is going to be king of Israel because he knows that's what I've promised. At this point, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Saul is still alive and kicking, and this apparent longevity has got to be a source of frustration for David as he waits for things to come to pass as I have promised. He's not taken matters into his own hand and made them happen, which we've already applauded and pointed out. But he is also making the most of the time he's spending waiting, living in preparation for my promise's fulfillment. Got that? We're still working through the Abra plan and its promises here, and how they're all pointed at rescuing your own personal precious behind in the end. But when we get to the other side of the Abra plan and into some of the promises I've issued to you personally, remember and apply David's active attitude. If you already know some of the promises I'm hinting and winking at here, then kick in David's active attitude already. Regardless of how much you know at this point, know that I am here, that my way is that which is truly real and lasting, and that the sooner you get on the way, the better. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, Give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. You can find a link to our Patreon page there as well. We're sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website graphics, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.